0: Welcome to the Astrophys Podcasts. My name is Brendan O'Brien, and today is Thursday the 16th of November 2017. Each fortnight we have a special guest in the fields of radio astronomy, optical astronomy, space science, or particle physics. And this week our special guest is Dr. Phil Edwards, who's going to tell us all about the SKA, the Square Kilometre Array, Neutrino Detections... And fast radio bursts. And that's followed by Dr. Ian Musgrave of AstroBlogger fame. Ian will tell us what's up, Doc, what's up in the night sky, and I'll be giving a brief news roundup as usual. So let's cross over to Sydney now to talk to Dr. Edwards in the Science Operations Centre. Hello, Phil. G'day, Brendan. It is a great pleasure today to be speaking with Dr. Phil Edwards. Phil is originally from South Australia and did his BSc, his BSc Honours and PhD at the University of Adelaide. He's now head of ATNF, the Australian Telescope National Facility Science at the CSIRO and the CSIRO SKA Project Scientist. So tell us about where you grew up as a child, please, Phil. How dark were the skies where you lived? And tell us a little about your school days and how you became interested in science and space. And what prompted you to study the sciences?
2: Oh, great questions. And I'm not sure that I have the answers to them all. (laughs) But I grew up in rural South Australia. My father was a high school teacher, so we moved around the state a bit. And I remember as a kid getting books about astronomy as Christmas presents, etc. Um, but whether that's what made me become interested in astronomy or whether I got those presents because I was already interested in astronomy, I, I'm not sure. Yep. I'm, I must go back and ask my parents which one it was. <laughs> At school, you know, I studied all the usual things. Uh, by the time I got into to high school, uh, it was science that I was a bit more interested in. And so back in those days... In the final year of high school, we had to do five subjects, one of which had to be uh, an arts subject, so that I did English, uh, and then did maths one, maths two, physics and chemistry, straight sciences. Never done any biology or genetics, and so that side of science is completely opaque to me, and I'm completely <laughs> ignorant.
0: <laughs> can you tell us, you then obviously moved on to university, can you tell us about your first degrees, and then why and how you studied ultra-high-energy gamma rays, and what technologies did you use for your PhD research, and should we call them death rays, Phil? (laughs) Uh,
2: No. (laughs) Uh, That gives them too much bad publicity. When I went to university, I enrolled in a general science degree without too much of an idea where that would take me. Um, If anything, I thought that I might sort of focus on maths and and, and perhaps end up as a, a high school teacher. But again, we had to choose four subjects in first year. And so I did maths, physics and chemistry. And then there was a a half subject in astronomy. So I naturally signed up for that. And to make up the other half subject, there was computing. So I signed up for that. And so by the end of first year, I I decided that chemistry wasn't for me. And so that left maths, physics and computing for second year because you couldn't go on with astronomy at that stage. By the end of second year, I decided that computing wasn't for me either. So that left physics and, and maths for third year. Did that and there was some astrophysics as part of the third year physics course and uh, did well enough to consider going on to do honours in physics. And I had a project that was supposed to be 50% theoretical doing some computer simulations and, and 50% experimental, but as it turned out, the supervisor for the theoretical side of the project was a young energetic guy named Ray Fothero, and he was very enthusiastic made sure I wanted me to make a lot of good progress. And so for the first six months, it was probably 95% theoretical and 5% experimental. Yep. And my other supervisor was Dr. Greg, who was, had been around the block a few times. And so he just waited until I was ready to, to start on the experimental side. And it all came together very nicely. Some of the simulations matched the experimental results we were getting. So it was a very nice, honest project. And the fact that uh, that it turned out so well probably was encouragement to consider going on to do a PhD. Yep. Very good. Uh, So, yes, so uh, ultra-high-energy gamma rays. We are bathed in a a constant radiation of of cosmic rays. Uh, Now, these are uh, just basically very high-energy charged particles. They are accelerated somewhere in our galaxy or various sites throughout our galaxy. Uh, And because they are charged particles, they are deflected by the galaxy's magnetic field. So they don't travel in straight lines. They cycle around the magnetic field lines. And so by the time they reach us at Earth... Their directions have been completely scrambled, and so they appear to come from equally from all directions. So one of the great mysteries is: well, where do these things come from? Cosmic rays themselves have no directional information, so the only way to find out is if there is. uh, At the same time as accelerating cosmic rays, there's good reason for thinking that gamma rays may be produced as well. Gamma rays are just uh, like X-rays or radio waves; they're a form of light, so that's not affected by the galactic magnetic field. And so, if we could detect Gamma rays amongst the high-energy cosmic rays that would give us some information about where both were originating cool And so just at the time I started my PhD There were a couple of reports in the literature that they had discovered for the first time ultra high-energy gamma rays Uh, These reports came from groups in the northern hemisphere uh, and they had been studying a number of x-ray binary systems a compact neutron star orbiting around a massive star and the material from the massive star was falling onto the neutron star and these systems were producing, we knew, high energy X-rays, probably gamma rays. And so they had studied these groups which have a known periodicity and there was evidence that there were ultra high energy gamma rays arriving with that same periodicity. So this seemed to be pretty strong evidence that we had identified for the first time um, a source of ultra-high-energy gamma rays and therefore ultra-high-energy cosmic rays. So I spent the next three years recording mostly ultra-high-energy cosmic rays, but hopefully amongst it, enough ultra-high-energy gamma rays to try and look for these kind of sources in the southern hemisphere. So how did we do this? As these cosmic rays and gamma rays enter the Earth's atmosphere, they interact with a, an atom or a molecule in the atmosphere and it create a cascade of particles. So... At the top of the atmosphere, you have one extremely high energy particle. Energy is conserved, and so by the time this cascade reaches ground level, you have a very large number of lower energy particles. And so, with an array of particle detectors, and we just used sheets of plastic scintillator in light tight containers with photomultipliers, and when a cascade of particles sort of passed across that array, we could detect the interaction of those particles with the scintillator using the photomultipliers and reconstruct the arrival direction. Of that cascade. So if they were uh, ultra-hundred gamma rays, that, that was then pointing back to the original celestial source.
0: Fantastic.
2: Now unfortunately, with the benefit of hindsight, we can say that those original reports from the Northern Hemisphere were probably incorrect. They're just some statistical fluctuations and so at the end of three years of recording all these showers and doing some analysis of all the most promising X-ray binaries in the Southern Hemisphere, I could find no evidence for any ultra-high-energy gamma rays. So that was kind of disappointing. But at that time, a whole new generation of more sensitive cosmic ray detectors were built, and they all yielded the same results. So we now know that those initial reports were most likely some kind of statistical fluctuation in the data. So I wrote up my PhD, and and in fact, I blew the dust off it just the other day because I remembered having two quotes on the front pages one of them was from a bloke named Barstow Bates, yep. who said that research is the process of going up alleys to see if they're blind. <laughs> and that's exactly what I felt that my PhD had done. And the other one was from George Bernard Shaw, who said that science is always wrong. It never solves a problem without creating 10 more. And so well, I think there's a lot of truth in that one as well. So uh, we got a negative result, but uh, that just led to more questions as well. If, if, if X-ray binaries aren't the source of these ultra-high energy gamma rays and cosmic rays, then what is? Um, and so that's still a field of studies.
0: What a fantastic way to launch a career. So tell us about your journey from postdoc to your current roles with the CSIRO and your project work with the SKA. It looks like it's been a fabulous journey.
2: It's been an interesting journey, and career paths are rarely linear. (laughs) Don't sort of start your career with a goal in mind and and travel in a straight line towards that. And and my career to date has been no exception to that rule. Uh, So, yes, having done a a PhD in ultra-high energy gamma rays, or searching for ultra-high energy gamma rays unsuccessfully, my first postdoc was in Japan at the Institute for Cosmic Gray Research there. It was effectively a continuation using a different array of particle detectors, they thought they had seen some evidence for ultra-energy gamma rays from one of these X-ray binaries, but we again collected more data, reduced that data, and uh, you know found some tentative indications that possibly there was a signal from a different X-ray binary, but none from the original one. And again, we had a lot to learn, uh, the, the, the astronomers in this field had a lot to learn about statistics and statistical trials, etc. And so after completing two and a half years in Japan, I came... Back to another postdoc at the University of Adelaide, working on a very similar field, very high-energy gamma rays rather than ultra-high-energy gamma rays. Yep. So different kind of detectors. We were using what looked a lot like a standard optical telescope. And so rather than detecting the particles from these cascades in the atmosphere, we were detecting Cherenkov light from similar kind of cascades, but slightly lower-energy cascades and slightly lower-energy gamma rays. Yep. And again, there was an active field of research in very high-energy gamma rays using this Cherenkov technique, and there had been a number of claims of very high-energy gamma rays from X-ray binary systems, which, again, with the benefit of hindsight, we can say uh, were most likely incorrect, and statistical fluctuations, that's probably the, the best explanation. Yep. But we worked on that with our telescope at Woomera for three years, took a lot of data and Again, uh, struggled to see, to confirm um, some of the previous claims. Uh, and as more sensitive detectors come online, they haven't been able to, re- to uh, re- replicate those results either. So at the end of that uh, second postdoctoral fellowship, that was coming to an end. So I was uh, looking around for positions to move on to. And I was contacted by someone from CSRO who said, look, Japan is about to launch a satellite to do radio astronomy and uh, this is using a technique known as a very long baseline interferometry yep. where with radio astronomy, the further apart you can uh, combine it, signals from telescopes that are a long way apart. Yep. Uh, and the further apart they are, the better the angular resolution or the more detail you can see in the image. Uh, of the of the radio source that you were making. Now yep. you can't use this for all sources; they have to be fairly bright and fairly compact sources. But it's a very powerful technique for high angular resolution images of radio sources. So this colleague, Dave Johnson, said to me, "Look, uh, you've been to Japan. You study. You speak a bit of Japanese. You know how the Japanese think. Um, this would be a great opportunity to go to Japan and get involved at the, the ground level of a space program before they launch their satellite. How about it?" And my initial response was. Oh, no thanks. I'd applied for a couple of other positions in ultra-high-energy and very high-energy gamma rays, and that was uh, where I saw my career going. But I was unsuccessful in all those applications, so I I called Dave back and said, you know know, that thing you were talking (laughs) about? Is is there any possibility of uh, that position still being available? And it was. And so I went back to Japan, but uh, moved from ultra high energies all the way down to the other end of the electromagnetic spectrum down at radio waves. And so when I went to Japan in 1994... Uh, I arrived thinking that uh, this satellite was going to launch in 1995, uh, only to discover that the launch had been delayed a year. Uh, It was going to launch in 1996, but I was able to stay for one year, and one year became two. But the launch was delayed again to um, February 1997, Uh, so fortunately I was able to to extend my stay for a third year. But the launch went ahead, and launch was successful. Um, And uh, so, again, I was able to stay for one more year, Uh, And uh, having stayed on sort of a a one-year extensions, by the time the satellite was up and running, uh, my boss was able to find a permanent position for me at the Institute for Space and Astronautical Science. And so having gone back to Japan for one year, I I returned to Australia 12 years later.
0: (laughs) Serendipity.
2: (laughs) Indeed, yes. (laughs) Having spent 12 years, the satellite had ceased operating by that time. And so we were really putting the, the finishing touches to that first mission. And there were plans underway at that stage for... Uh, a follow up, um, a second Space Fuel BI mission from Japan, which ultimately that mission did not proceed. Um, but there is currently another Space Fuel BI mission operating, one um, launched by Russia. So part of the work that I'm doing now in, in involves in, um, uh, collaborating with our colleagues in Russia on this radio astron Space Fuel BI mission.
0: Oh, sure.
2: So, how did I end up with the SKA? When I came back from Japan, I moved to CSIRO and I originally moved to Narrabri. In northern New South Wales, and that's the location for the Australia Telescope Compact Array. That's an array of uh, six 22-metre diameter telescopes and five of them on a rail track, so we can move them to be uh, very close together, sort of uh, have those five clustered within 90 metres of each other, or we can stretch them all out so that they're along an east-west track and up to six kilometres apart. So we can have, um, effectively, it's a a six-kilometre diameter radio telescope and so it's not quite as Sensitive it doesn't collect as many radio waves as the park's 64 meter dish but six kilometers rather than 60 meters across it makes much higher angular resolution images So I worked on that for a number of years and the role then changed and so I became a bit more involved in parks as well as the compact array then CSIRO was building the Australia square kilometer array pathfinder in Western Australia Um, or ASCAP, as it's known. Uh, And so it became clear that my role was going to start becoming more involved in ASCAP. So we moved from Narrabri down here to Sydney. And that's sort of how things have gone. And and so ASCAP is Square Kilometre Array Pathfinder. And as the Square Kilometre Array itself is at an exciting stage, there's been – the idea was first proposed back in the very early 1990s. It's over 25 years since people started talking about a Square Kilometre Array um, but it is going to be a, a very large international project and so there's been a lot of work in a lot of countries um, considering how best to design this, where to locate it, how to operate it, etc. And so in the last five years or so it's become clear that there's currently 10 countries involved in the square kilometer array And after a lot of consideration, it's been decided to split the telescope into a low-frequency part and a a higher-frequency part and to to site those in different places. So the low-frequency part will be built in Western Australia um, on the same site as ASCAP, and the mid-frequency or the higher-frequency component will be built in South Africa.
0: Okay. Look, I'm going to diverge a minute... ...and we'll get back to the SKA. In your journey... You've had a tremendous range of astrophysics papers published with thousands of citations and can you tell us about a recent discovery of high energy neutrinos from beyond our galaxy? You were one of the Australian members of an international team that followed up some neutrino detections that came about by bugging a cubic kilometre of ice down in the Antarctica and finding some Sesame Street characters. I'm not (laughs) joking. This is big science using monstrous detectors looking for the tiniest particles that give us new understandings of our cosmos. Please give us a skinny on this work and its implications, please, Dr Edwards.
2: Certainly. Radio astronomers are very excited about a square kilometre array, which is a square kilometre of collecting area. But our colleagues in the the particle physics uh, side of things already have a cubic kilometre of detector (laughs) in Antarctica, as you say. So this is really interesting stuff. So neutrinos are subatomic particles, elementary particles. There's something like a a billion neutrinos pass through your body every second. There are vast numbers of neutrinos, but they interact very, very rarely. They have a very small interaction cross-section. So they are neutral particles, so like gamma rays, they come in straight lines from the sources, from their their sources where they are produced. Uh, And so there's a lot of interest in uh, trying to detect neutrinos from either our galaxy or other galaxies uh, and uh, seeing what that tells us about how particles are uh, accelerated. This cubic kilometre of ice in Antarctica is called Ice Cube. So it's the, the Ice Cube detector and they've been operating for a number of years and One of the difficulties is that there are cosmic neutrinos, but also all the cosmic rays interacting with the Earth's atmosphere also produce neutrinos. Uh, And so one of their difficult tasks is uh, separating the cosmic neutrinos from other galaxies potentially from all those produced just in our atmosphere from those cosmic rays. Uh, And there are a number of ways that they can do that. And so after operating for a number of years, they they had found some very, very high-energy neutrino events uh, in their data and for reasons which are best known to the collaboration, they gave these the names of Sesame Street characters. Yep. <laughs> so yeah, I'm, I'm not sure what the what the uh, the uh, the reason behind that was, but uh, one of them was um, Ernie, one of them was Bert, one of them was Big Bird, and so uh, I think these names are sort of leaked into the scientific literature as well. We're all people, and we like to name things. So they had d- discovered these extremely high neutrino events. Now one of the unfortunate things about the detector was that it couldn't say with a great deal of accuracy exactly where on the sky these had come from. So there was an uncertainty of sort of 10 or 15 degrees on the sky. It narrows it down to a patch of sky but not with great detail and so if you ask astronomers what interesting objects are there in that patch of sky they generally shrug and say well there are far too many (laughs) galaxies in a a region of sky like that. But there are good reasons for thinking that Astronomical sources or galaxies that are producing neutrinos might also be producing gamma rays. By the same acceleration processes, if you're accelerating charged particles to high energies, one of the natural consequences could well be detectable um, fluxes of neutrinos and gamma rays. And so the, an international collaboration that I'm involved with was taking the sources which had been detected with NASA's Fermi gamma ray satellite and so we were looking at the bright gamma-ray sources and then studying those at radio wavelengths. And so we were using this, this technique of very long baseline interferometry, uh, using uh, not space fill in this case, but using telescopes across Australia, in New Zealand and uh, in South Africa, and using those to study the active centres of these galaxies which were producing gamma-rays. Was there anything special about the uh, sources we were studying that were inside this uncertainty, or this error box or this uh, that were consistent with um, the direction that these neutrinos were coming from, yep. uh, and we found that in one case, yes, there was an active galaxy uh, that had, uh, at the time the neutrino was detected, been undergoing quite a significant brightening at radio and gamma ray energies.
1: Yep.
2: Um, so it was certainly plausible that the neutrinos could have been detected at the same time. Now, there are, there are enough uncertainties. We uh, we certainly weren't studying every single galaxy inside that region, but it was certainly a plausible connection, so we wrote this up uh, and published this result. It's very hard to determine the statistical significance of the two. We thought there was sort of a 95% chance that these two events were correlated and so that the neutrino had come from this galaxy, but there's certainly some uncertainty, and some of my colleagues uh, think that uh, you know, 95% isn't enough to be compelling um, but it's uh, it's a strong indication and it's an easily tested theory. The more neutrinos are detected, we can look at the other um, gamma-ray sources in those fields and see if they are also undergoing flares at the same time. Um, so, yeah, so that's how I came to be involved with um, Sesame Street characters in, in Antarctica.
0: Fantastic. And that's the way science works. Answer one question and you find a lot more. Look, let's go to the SKA then, the Square Kilometre Array. You've... Given us a broad outline of the Australian and the South African instruments, can you just tell us a little bit more perhaps about the MRO and the Murchison Field Array? Can you tell us a bit about those instruments? I think they're called spiders, is that right?
2: <laughs> sure. Well, there's been a lot of thought given to the square kilometre array and how best to construct it radio astronomy has not stood still. Uh, We're not not just uh, standing around waiting for the square kilometre array to come along. There's been a lot of activity over the last uh, 20, 25 years in in, uh, improving existing telescopes and building new telescopes. Uh, And so uh, in Australia, because we were um, bidding to host the square kilometre array, uh, there was a lot of interest in looking for good sites, uh, establishing infrastructure on those sites and and building uh, useful uh, telescopes Uh, to study how telescopes would perform in that kind of environment. So in Western Australia, we have what's called the Murchison Radio Astronomy Observatory, or the MRO. And uh, that's um, out from Geraldton, basically almost as far from civilization as we could comfortably place it, to place it in a radio quiet zone. And in fact, there's legislation establishing this area as formally as a radio quiet zone. There's a lot of human activities produce radio interference, uh, which will interfere with these sensitive telescopes that we are building and, and, and want to build there. And so we now have legislation backing us up and keeping this zone uh, radio quiet. So one of the interesting statistics is that the, uh, this radio quiet zone uh, is about the same size as the Netherlands, uh, <laughs> but has a population of about uh, 100 people. Yep. And so uh, that's great for radio astronomy. In fact, one of the, potentially one of the worst enemies for uh, keeping it a radio quiet zone is ourselves. Yes. Uh, the telescope that we build involves uh, a lot of processing, um, computers and hardware to do the processing, all of which produce radio frequency interference. Yep. Uh, and so one of the, one of the big jobs is to make sure that all our uh, equipment on site is housed in uh, an extremely well shielded building so that none of the radio frequency interference we produce uh, leaks out uh, to interfere with our telescopes.
0: Yep. And so the whole building's a huge Faraday cage.
2: Exactly. No windows at all in the building. Uh, a number of layers of uh, protective um, metal shielding so that, uh, as you say, it's a Faraday cage and radiation can't escape from that building. On site, we have two main telescopes at the moment. Uh, one Uh, operates at lower frequencies and that's the Murchison Wide Field Array or the MWA, uh, which is uh, operated by uh, a large international collaboration and with Curtin University being the the main um, party to to operate and run the telescope. So that operates at relatively low frequencies from 50 up to 250 or 300 megahertz uh, and so that's doing a number of uh, very interesting studies at those lower frequencies and Then the other telescope is the one I mentioned earlier, ASCAP, the Australian Square Kilometre Array Pathfinder. And that's a more traditional looking radio telescope. It's 36 dishes, 12 metres across, and a couple of novel features. One is that rather than just a single receiver or a single, effectively a single pixel receiver on each telescope, uh, we're using a phased array feed, uh, which is, gives us a much wider Field of view, so we can study much more of the sky, and so it's effectively thirty-six times faster, if you like, or more sensitive than a, than a traditional radio telescope. Yep. And so, uh, because we can study a wider field of view, it's a it's a fantastic survey instrument. So we can study uh, the a lush, well, we can study more of the sky and study it more quickly than a traditional radio telescope.
0: Fantastic. Now, this is a multi-billion-dollar project that will run for decades, Phil. You've got some precursor instruments in place already in ASCAP, the MWA and Meerkat. Can you talk us through some of the design and construction milestones for the SKA?
2: Okay. Um, So, yes. So sorry, you asked previously about the spiders, and um, the the spiders are the MWA. Uh, They uh, are not what, if you say radio telescope, many people think of a dish, something perhaps like parks. Because uh, the NWA operates at lower frequencies, uh, it has no dish component to it at all. It uses um, dipoles, just dipole antennas, and and arrays of those spread across the ground. Uh, And yes, they have been described as uh, looking a bit like spiders or arrays of spiders on the ground. So at low frequencies, uh, the telescope design looks quite different to how it does at higher frequencies. And one of the great things about the NWA is it also has um, sensitivity to a a very wide uh, area on the sky. Uh, at the one time. So it's, it also does, is very sensitive to uh, a large patch of the sky. You you mentioned Meerkat. That's, so that's the, the South African precursor. Uh, That's an array of 64 telescopes, which is um, being commissioned at the moment in, in South Africa. It looks a little bit like, similar to the ASCAP kind of dishes. Operates in a slightly different frequency range, different telescope design, uh, but a, a traditional kind of telescope. Um, and with, with single pixel feeds rather than phase to ray feeds. Yep. But Meerkat will be expanded into, um, the SKA mid uh, phase one. The plan for SKA, we're still in the design phase at the moment. Uh, and, uh, I mentioned previously that there are, uh, 10 countries, uh, currently, um, involved in the SKA and those are Australia, uh, South Africa, as the, as host countries and then Canada, China, India, Italy, Netherlands, New Zealand, Sweden, uh, and the UK uh, are all a part of the SKA board, which is uh, overseeing the, um, the design activities at the moment. We expect that in the next year or so, those countries will start signing up to an intergovernmental organization that will be then responsible for the construction of the SKA. Uh, which will, will take us, take a number of years uh, and run us through to the middle of next, the next decade. As I mentioned, the square kilometre array uh, will be constructed on two different sites, the lower frequency, um, array in Western Australia uh, and the mid frequency telescope, uh, in, in South Africa. And that's, that's phase one of the telescope. Uh, and there are, uh, so we won't be realising a full square kilometre of collecting area, uh, with our phase one. Um, uh, the phase 1 parts of the telescope uh, and then there'll be a later phase 2 uh, which will uh, expand upon the the phase 1 parts and hopefully stretch that out to a full square kilometre of collecting area.
0: Fantastic. Now with such a huge project, Phil, you've got some amazing precursor arrays in place and there's some exciting results out already. Can you tell us about the GLEAM results that have come through?
2: Okay, yeah, so GLEAM is uh, an all-sky survey uh, carried out with the, uh, with the NWA. So they have it's taken them a number of years to observe the whole sky in the, in the 50 to 250 megahertz range. Uh, and uh, one of the interesting things about the uh, observing at lower frequencies is that the Earth's ionosphere has to be taken into account. So when you're trying to pinpoint radio sources, Everyone knows that stars twinkle. If you go out at the nighttime sky and look at stars, stars twinkle. um, And in fact, stars twinkle, but planets don't. Planets are large enough that uh, they don't appear to twinkle. So it's one way to tell stars and planets apart. Uh, And so at uh, radio wavelengths, there there are analogous effects. uh, And the ionosphere um, causes uh, radio sources to appear to twinkle. And so uh, if you're trying to pinpoint a source, that's that's uh, um, the ionosphere can sometimes uh, can get in the way. And so part of the uh, colleagues at the NWA have spent a lot of time understanding the effects of the ionosphere on their observations. Uh, and in fact, they have uh, made some fascinating discoveries about the way the ionosphere behaves. It, be- it becomes a very powerful telescope to study the ionosphere as well as to, d- to discover, uh, to study uh, radio sources. But the GLEAM survey... Has, uh, has catalogued over 300,000 radio sources, some of which were known, some of which have been discovered for the first time. Um, and uh, so they released a catalogue a-, a year or so ago that is uh, far greatly exceeds uh, all previous catalogues um, at these frequencies of the sky. And that's now generating a lot of follow-up work to to understand uh, the-, the properties of all these radio galaxies. Uh, they also have a lot of material about uh, the Milky Way galaxy, uh, but that is um, much more... Complicated because the the galaxy itself is a very strong source of radio emission, yep. and so we're eagerly looking forward to uh, to their results on um, uh, radio sources in the in the Milky Way as well.
0: Fantastic! Now, in an earlier episode, we spoke with your colleague J. P. McQuart and he told us about using ASCAP to detect FRBs, fast radio bursts. I see you've published a paper with him and others. And could you now tell us about directionality, repeating FRBs, and what is the current thinking for the cause and sources of FRBs?
2: Ah, well, yes, this is this is a very hot topic in um, in radio astronomy at the moment. These fast radio bursts. The uh, the, the first one was discovered about ten years ago um, in in some data. Uh, but uh, by the time they had looked at the data, something like uh, five or six years had elapsed yes. since the FIB had actually happened, and so it was very difficult to do any any follow-up of, of that event uh, when we only became aware of it sort of five years later. Uh, so since then, there's been a lot of effort into searching for fast radio bursts and following them up as promptly as possible. Um, and so, yes, so as we've been commissioning uh, ASCAP, we realised that uh, we could use it in not a mode that it had been designed for, uh, but we could use it in a, in a fly's eye mode where we point uh, the, a number of the available telescopes into uh, to different patches of sky yep. uh, and operate them to search for fast radio bursts um, and This was uh, in in the first four days of observing in this mode with only about 10 telescopes in this fly's eye mode, uh, we detected a couple of fast radio bursts. And so because despite the efforts of the the world's radio astronomy community, we've spent a lot of time searching for fast radio bursts, but they are frustratingly rare. Uh, And so there's only about 30 fast radio bursts that um, have been detected and published to date. Uh, And so by uh, ASCAP discovering a couple in its first few days, uh, then uh, we thought, well, that we could, um, uh, we may be able to make a very good contribution to this field. Uh, so you mentioned repeating FRBs. Uh, so far, there's only been one FRB that's been found to repeat. Uh, and it has repeated on a number of occasions. Uh, and so by uh, staring at that patch of sky with uh, um, uh, in increasingly sensitive and, uh, and using VLBI telescopes to really pin it down, uh, we have found been able to identify the source of that, that fast radio burst and it's um, an otherwise reasonably anonymous galaxy it's some it's, um, distance from our own, yep. that's one FRB that appears to repeat. All the others, uh, despite staring at those, those patches of sky, don't appear to. So whether all FRBs repeat but some less often than others or whether this one repeating FRB is a very special class and most fast radio bursts don't repeat is a, an open line of investigation. There were some thoughts that uh, whatever produces an FRB might be a, a catastrophic event. It might be like a supernova, perhaps, or um, two neutron stars merging. Uh, and so that would only happen once, uh, and there'd there'd be no repeating. But this one repeating FRB has shown us that there there must be some other mechanism for producing FRBs. Uh, and so, yes, this is an active field of investigation. So ASCAP now has um, detected a couple more FRBs, uh, and uh, we're, we're looking forward to building up the statistics of FRBs um, using their uh, their dispersion characteristics or the way that the uh, lower frequencies arrive later than the higher frequencies, which gives us some measure of the, the distance to the source yeah. and, and uh, working out uh, exactly uh, what these mysterious sources are.
0: Fantastic. Now, let's fast forward now to the middle of the next decade and the SKA is fully deployed. What will it look like and what are your hopes for it, Phil?
2: Yeah, so th- that'll be a great day uh, when um, the the SKA is SKA phase one is running by the you know, middle of next decade, um, and we as the telescope is taking shape. So our plans are to have an array of about 200 dishes in South Africa for SKA phase one, uh, and 130,000 dipole antennas um, in Western Australia for oh. SKA phase one. So those deployments will be staged, and and so will be. Um, as soon as as soon as we have um, all the processing equipment in, in place, uh, we'll be starting to take data and, and test that the data recording's working, that the processing's going okay, uh, and so we'll be sort of ramping up towards the, the commissioning stage. will be, be going alongside the construction stage for a lot of that period. SKA has a number of key science drivers for the low frequency telescope studying the cosmic, what's known as cosmic dawn, that the first stars and galaxies is, is an important part of SKA Low. Uh, studying the evolution of galaxies studying cosmology and trying to work out what, what dark energy might be, yes. uh, studying cosmic magnetism, testing general relativity by studying pulsars uh, and even the cradle of life, trying to work out how planets might form, um, studying molecules in the interstellar medium uh, and even searches for extraterrestrial civilizations all form sort of part of that that uh, key science area and Last but not least, there's the exploration of the unknown. So who knows what discoveries will happen between now and and when the SKA comes online, uh, and who knows what discoveries the SKA is going to make of its own. Um, There's there's a lot of work that's been done to show that, despite the best of our predictions about what telescopes will do when they are commissioned, that their their highest impact discoveries are often those which were just uh, completely unpredictable and, and not forecast in advance. There's an incredible range of science that the SKA will address, uh, and it's going to be exciting times.
0: Sensational. Now, I was going to ask you about a typical working week for you, but I see you have an impossible number of boards and committees that you sit on, you chair, and you lead, and you do collaborative research, and, for example, next week you're duty astronomer for the ATNF. Does this mean you're a regular out at Narabri and Kunabara
2: The duty astronomer is um, a, a role we have for uh, for staff and for uh, students with the, the Compact Array, and um, it, it, they. So the Compact Array and the Parks telescope are national facilities, uh, and so astronomers from around the world. Uh, we call them national facilities, but they're really international facilities, um, and astronomers uh, from around the world come to use our our telescopes, uh, and. The duty astronomer is just a, a is a support role, uh, and so uh, we generally roster people on for a week, uh, and they then become the, the first line of support. If the observers are having problems, uh, they can call up the duty astronomer, who um, provides assistance as they can, or, or directs them to um, the, the the appropriate engineers to resolve any issues that might have come up. Up until five years ago, it used to be that the duty astronomer for the Compact Array went up to Narrabri yep. uh, and worked at the telescope up there. Uh, we've now moved to having uh, a lot of the compact array observing done from down here in Sydney in our Science Operations Centre uh, and Parks Observing also takes place here from the Science Operations Centre uh, and increasingly once uh, observers are trained, the internet links are now good enough that they can actually observe from their own home institution. Uh, but yes, uh, we're all expected to do stints as uh, due to Summer and so I've signed up to do, a, to do a week of that as well.
0: Awesome. Okay, now the mic is all yours, Phil, and you have the opportunity to give us your favourite rant or rave about the challenges we face in science, in education, in outreach, in equity, in funding challenges, in managing big data, which is going to be a particular problem for the SKA. Can you give us your favourite rant or rave,
2: please, Phil? (laughs) So many to choose from. Yes. I don't don't have a particular... uh Favorite rant or rave, but perhaps I'll just uh, give a shout out to all the postdoctoral researchers that are working on in astronomy at the moment, and and all branches of science. It's a a career in astronomy is, as we mentioned earlier, uh, takes a lot of excursions from uh, from the path you might uh, might have hoped it would take, uh, and you can feel a bit like a pinball at time from bouncing from one project and one place to another. And so there's a long gestation period for an astronomer, and so you you go to university. You get a degree, you usually get a PhD, uh, and then you'll do one, two, or increase these days increasingly three uh, postdocs. And so, you know, it sounds quite um, exciting to be uh, traveling around the world and living in different places, but that can also be quite challenging because you, you may not end up with a permanent job until you're uh, somewhere into your thirties. And so setting down and starting a family, putting down roots, buying a house, all of those things are sort of put on hold until, uh, until you've uh, established a career. So, um, not too surprisingly, we, we lose a lot of very promising, very smart astronomers who choose slight, you know, a bit more certainty in their lives than going on this postdoc doc uh, crawl. Um, I bet they go on to have successful careers elsewhere. Uh, but to, to those who stick it out, good on them and uh, wish them all the best.
0: Thank you very much, Phil. It's been fantastic speaking with you. Uh, today we've been speaking with Dr. Phil Edwards. Thank you, Phil.
2: Pleasure, Brendan.
0: Today's news report is via Castro, a wonderful Australian science consortium with the most perplexing acronym ever invented. Their news release is titled Conquering the Winner's Curse for Fast Radio Bursts. Now, in episode 35, we featured J.P. McQuart in our Fast Radio Burst episode, and he has just published another FRB paper. It's just out now, in the monthly notices of the Royal Astronomical Society called FRB Event Rate Counts, interpreting the observations by Jean-Pierre McQuart and Ron Eckers. Some background. Fast radio bursts are millisecond blips of radio waves. They were discovered in 2007, and we still don't know what they are. Suggestions have ranged from neutron stars imploding to propulsion systems for alien spacecraft. Pull the other one. Here is C. Castro news release. Castro astronomers have done the sums again on mysterious cosmic radio bursts, finding that they may have been more common earlier in the universe's history. Fortunately, we can examine the origins of FRBs just by measuring how the number of bursts, n, varies with their apparent brightness, s. If the bursts come from relatively nearby galaxies, n would have a specific relationship to s. It would follow a power law with an index of minus 3 on 2 because the volume of space increases as the distance to the power of 3 and the brightness decreases to the power of 2. So an index of minus 3 on 2 suggests that the bursts are distributed in a manner that's called Euclidean. However, the power law index could be much larger than minus 3 on 2. If so, that would imply that the bursts probably originated further away and that the rate at which they occur has changed markedly over the lifetime of the universe such a distribution would be non-Euclidean. The relationship between N and S has been a hot topic among astronomers studying FRBs, and so Castro Advisory Board member Ron Eckers from the CSIRO and Castro Associate Investigator Jean-Pierre McQuart from ICRA Curtin University decided to take a fresh look at it they found that existing estimates of the relationship have been strongly influenced by the extreme brightness of the very first FRB discovered, the so-called Lorimer Burst. The Lorimer Burst is an example of discovery bias, also known as the winner's curse, in which the first detected instance of a new phenomena is often highly unrepresentative of its underlying population that comes along later. Removing the Lorimer burst from a population statistics makes a large difference to estimates of the N-to-S relationship. McQuart and Eckers re the FRB population using data from CSIRO's Parkes telescope, which has found more than half of the known FRBs. All these detections were made using the telescope's 13-beam receiver, which looks in 13 different directions simultaneously. The brighter an FRB is, the more likely it is to show up in more than one of a telescope's beams, and so the fraction of multiple beam detections to single beam detections directly measures the ratio of extremely bright bursts to... Fainter bursts. A previous analysis based on this ratio had suggested that the distribution is much shallower than the Euclidean value. However, McCourt and Eckers found that it is much easier to detect fainter FRBs in multiple beams than had been supposed. To make a new estimate, McCourt and Eckers applied techniques developed in the 1970s to measure the distribution of quasars in space. They found that the most likely end to s relationship for FRBs was steeper than the Euclidean value, and this in turn suggests that the FRBs come from far off in the universe and that like quasars, they were more common earlier in the life of the universe. The Parkes data set is the best available to date, but McCourt and Ecker's work has highlighted some of the difficulties of interpreting it. Future telescopes, such as the Australian SKA Pathfinder, ASCAP, and the newly commissioned CHIME instrument in Canada, will be free of such problems and, with their very large fields of view, will detect more of the very bright FRBs, which we need to really pin down the distribution ratio. Which reminds me, we should really see if we can get Emily Petroff on Astrophys. And while we're adding a final note, please note that since we conducted our SKA interview with Dr. Phil Edwards that you heard earlier in this episode, it has just been announced that the $2.2 million upgrade on the MWA, the Murchison Widefield Array, was completed this week. The MWA upgrade marks the completion of Phase 2 in its development with the doubling of the number of antenna stations for a total of over 4,000 antennas arranged within an area with a diameter of roughly 6 kilometres. That was the Astrophys News. And next up we have our regular segment with Dr Ian Musgrave of Astroblogger fame for his segment What's Up Doc?
1: Hello, Ian. Hello, Brendan. How's it going?
0: Very well, thank you. Great to be speaking with you again. And here we are. This podcast will be going out just after we've seen a conjunction with Venus and Jupiter.
1: Yes, indeed. Sadly, tragically, we won't get to discuss it too much. Unfortunately from Australia, the conjunction is right down in twilight. And you have to be very careful observing it because very shortly after the conjunction the uh, sun rises, and you have to be very careful not to destroy your um, sight with the sun, especially if you're using binoculars to uh, look for Jupiter. But for those of you in the northern hemisphere, if you're listening to this now, it's too late. We've missed it out, missed out of it. But uh, Jupiter and uh, Venus are quite, were quite close together, and they're a reasonable distance above the horizon, about a uh, handstand above the horizon at half an hour before sunrise, so you should have been able to see it fairly well. So this means that you should keep a good watch out for what's coming up over the next few days so that you don't miss out on anything like this again. Very good, Ian. So can you tell us what's up in the sky this week? This week sees a number of interesting things. Mercury is climbing higher in the evening sky and it's going to have some more interesting meetings in the... Uh, morning sky, we see the return of Jupiter, just, and Mars meets the moon, and also we've got the Leonids, but I'll go into a little bit more detail about each of these right now. So, if you're looking in the evening sky, you you will have been seeing Mercury climbing higher into the evening sky. If you were looking last week, you would have seen Mercury very close to, uh, Delta Scorpii. Again, this uh the situation for the evening and morning skies. for the first. The evening skies are best for Mercury and the Scorpion in the southern hemisphere, whereas they're best for Jupiter and Venus in the northern hemisphere. But anyway, if you've been looking uh, out to the western horizon around about half an hour after sunset, you'll be able to see Mercury in its violet glow. And then shortly after that, the Delta Scorpii, the star in the, the dead centre head of the scorpion, would have peered uh, out of the twilight, and they looked very nice together. And uh, if you've been following it, you've been watching Mercury climb higher up the body of the scorpion, heading towards the bright red star Antares. Again, sadly, by the time this goes out, we will see Mercury-Antares conjunction that 1st and the 13th. I did flag that in our last podcast, but uh, this podcast, we're going to miss it. But that doesn't really matter so much because what you'll be seeing is Mercury leaving Antares behind and heading towards Saturn. Now, the Mercury-Saturn conjunction won't occur until the 28th in time for our next podcast, but although the conjunction itself will be quite nice, watching Mercury night after night, remember Mercury is moving really quickly uh, compared to other planets. So every every night you look out into the western twilight, Mercury will have moved a significant amount. And at the moment, you can see a line uh, between Antares, Mercury and Saturn. And Saturn, that line will, be, will draw out as Mercury gets closer and closer to Saturn. So it's very nice watching in the late evening. Half an hour after sunset, you can just about see Mercury. I saw it quite nicely back with the uh, the Delta-Scorpion conjunction, So you have to wait a little bit longer, say uh, 45 minutes after the sunset, to see the other stars of the Scorpion quite clearly. Nonetheless, by that time, Mercury is really obvious. So you've got uh, uh, Antares is the bright red star, Mercury is uh, a bright whitish object, and then uh, the uh, next bright yellowish object is Saturn. So they're all reasonably easy to see. Unfortunately, now Saturn is so low in the twilight that it's not really good for telescopic observation. In a telescope, you'll be able to see the rings of Saturn quite easily, but the atmospheric turbulence will mean that you can see virtually no detail in it.
0: Now, very good, and now at the moment, are you sitting near an open window? I'm sure I can hear crickets.
1: Yes, that's because you can hear crickets. Now, uh, we've got crickets uh, chirping in the background. They're enjoying the the first proper warmth we've had for some time and they're all making a joyous noise. (laughs) Okay, Ian, tell us about the morning sky. Well, in the morning sky, Mars is now sufficiently high above the horizon that it's looking very nice indeed. It's relatively easy to see. From the southern hemisphere, Venus and Jupiter are quite low above the horizon. Really, at half an hour after sunrise, they're only about three finger widths above the horizon. So you'll need to have something like flat, level, unobstructed surface, like an ocean or a lake or uh, a desert, to be able to see them. In the northern hemisphere, they're much higher in the sky, half an hour after sunset, so they're relatively easy to see. So now we have previously lost companions, Jupiter and Mars, back again. Jupiter will continue to rise earlier. As I said, by the time this goes out, we will have missed the November 13th conjunction of Jupiter and Venus. They'll be exceedingly close together. But Jupiter will will continue to rise higher. Now, if you are rising early in the morning, you'll see the uh, waning moon slowly moving towards our three-hour planets. On the 15th, the crescent moon is its closest to Mars. Then on the 16th, the crescent moon is between Mars and uh, the pair of Jupiter and Venus. But on the 17th, you'll have a really nice triangle, uh, of the thin crescent moon, Jupiter and Venus. Now, sadly for us, uh, for those of us in the southern hemisphere, the trio will be very, very close to the horizon and you'll have to be looking very uh, close to sunrise in order to see the trio above the horizon. In the Northern Hemisphere, you have uh, a much better view. At this time, the trio will be uh, approximately you know, over a hand span above the horizon, so it'll be really quite easy to see these uh, in the morning sky, and they'll look very spectacular. Fantastic,
0: Ian. And do you have a tangent for
1: us for this episode? Well, I do, but before I get to the tangent, I'd like to talk about the Leonard Vibial because on the 15th, uh, at the same time as the thin crescent moon is closest to Mars, near the meteor shower is starting to ramp up. Its peak is on the 16th universal time, which from the Australian point of view is the 17th. But there's, uh, there's going to be two, well rather there's going to be two peaks. The first on the 16th universal time is a predicted peak, and the second on the 17th universal time, which is the 18th from the point of view of us in Australia, is the standard peak. Now, the Leonards have, have uh, dwindled much beyond their original storm levels. Back in 1999-2000, we saw an amazing storm of leonards, But now we're going to be only seeing about one meteor every 10 minutes. So the, there's one peak, uh, the, the uh, expected new peak uh, on the 16th Universal Time. We expect to see about uh, a meteor every uh, maybe 9 to 10 minutes and at its standard peak, you'll see a meteor about once every 10 minutes. Uh, finding the Leo is fairly obvious. Leo is a very obvious asterism in the sky. If you're looking to the northeast, you'll see the very obvious bright star Regulus in Leo and the sickle of Leo, uh, this uh, grouping of stars that looks like a curved sickle, agri- uh, an agricultural implement, or indeed a question mark and the uh, radiance of the meteor shower is very close to uh, that um, signal of Leo. Again, leonards are much better seen from the northern hemisphere than the southern hemisphere. For us, they're quite low. We won't see too many Leonids, but uh, they're expected to be very bright and very fast meteors. So uh, even though you won't see many meteors, the occasional meteor you will see would be very worthwhile watching.
0: Fantastic, so get out there and check out the Leonards. Thank you very much Ian Astroblog Musgrove It was a pleasure to be on Thanks Ian See you in two weeks
1: Radio Wave